one of my favorite things that anybody's ever said to me about game design is it is a game design flaw if a player wants to spend a million dollars on your game and they actively cannot. Welcome to Key Characters. My name is Hal Crawford. Today, I'm speaking with a man by the name of Chandler Tomlinson. Chandler is the founder and driving force at World Spark Studios. He and his team are making a game called Sparkball. Sparkball is a frenetic mix of combat and sport, as you'll hear in the interview. You'll also hear the hard lessons Chandler has learned over the past six years of struggle. In this interview, we cover how raising money influenced Sparkball's adoption of blockchain tech, how, despite that, the developers are now not mentioning blockchain at all because of gamer hostility, and how making two games at once is a very bad idea. I'm Chandler Tomlinson, and I'm the founder and CEO at WorldSpark Studios, who make the game Sparkle. Yeah, cool. Uh, and that's what we're here to talk about. I know that I've got some quite keen Sparkball players in my <laughs> team, uh, which is often how these things happen. Uh, Web3 is quite a small community. Can you tell me about your team and where they're based? Yeah, so we are fully remote, uh, but a lot of us are in LA. We uh, Most of our studio is former Riot. We took a lot of inspiration from League of Legends. So when we got funding and said, hey, let's build a team, it was pretty obvious. They might as well grab the people that made League of Legends. We found that like a hybrid model of the, uh, what I would describe as like the raw talent of former Riot people with kind of that super hungry startup workhorse feel has made a really good combo. So tell me about that, uh, the journey of uh, collecting those people. I've, I've just been reading uh, a Medium piece that you wrote a while back talking about how tough it was to assemble. How did you convince people to get on board? Yeah, th- that's a journey for sure. So I started Sparkball about seven years ago. I don't come from gaming at all. I was a consultant, just always wanted to make video games. Knew as a kid, I'm going to make video games at some point in my life. Finally had enough money and spare time and said, hey, I'm going to try this myself. How hard can it be? And it turns out the answer is really hard. Impossible to make a video game. Like, it's crazy hard. So just winged it for six years. We worked with about 250-something different freelancers that I just randomly found around the internet and put together a really neat prototype for about 200-something thousand dollars, which is a really good prototype for that cost. We went out and finally raised money, and pretty much every VC in the entire world as expected, say, hey, Chandler, your prototype is crazy good, but you have no team. Like, I, I'm not investing in 250 freelancers. I'm going to need you to go build the team. So we said, okay, we obviously want this AAA experience. We're trying to build a AAA game. We're trying to build the next big MOBA in a way. Let's go grab a bunch of people from Ryan. And so we just started reaching out nonstop. I've sent probably 3,000 something LinkedIn messages to Riot employees, Blizzard employees, Bungie employees, everything we could think of. And we just started actually getting calls. And once you land like the first five, it becomes a little easier. Uh, But yeah, I mean, there's no secret sauce to it other than a bunch of cold calls. And I think what really helped is I had a prototype. I had a really good game already. And so when we were contacting these Riot people, it's kind of like, look, I've done the legwork. We've got a really solid game. I just need you to come bring it to the next level. And I think a lot of those people saw it as an opportunity to say, hey, this game is rough. It's promising, but it is rough. They just need someone like me to come in and clean it up. And we hired, I want to say, 30-something people in three and a half, four months. Um, so was really good at recruiting, probably too good. And that's not egotistical. I just mean like it was too fast, too fast, too much. 
And entirely remote as well. You're the CEO and founder, and uh, so you're the the centre of that hub. Do you find that difficult, a fully remote team? I would say the fully remote part isn't super difficult. I've been remote my entire career. So coming out of college, I was instantly remote as a consultant. Not a lot of people shared that experience. So when the pandemic hit, it was a huge shock for everybody. And I'm just like, guys, this is just normal. And I think what a lot of people struggle with is like time management. I don't have any kids, for example. And that allows me to work 100 hours a week and I don't mind it. I think a lot of people have that kind of tough adjustment period of you're not being forced to work in a way. And I think we had a lot of people that, you know, unless you have a producer directly giving tasks, here's what you need to do, which is really tough at a startup. I think we lost a lot of productivity, frankly. And I think there are people that are good at remote working. And I think there are people that are not good at remote working. Let's just talk about the game, which I think used to be called Eden Brawl and is now Correct. called Spark Ball. I won't summarize it. You tell me what the game is. Yeah. I mean, just to put it simply, it's League of Legends meets Rocket League or Battle Right meets Omega Strikers. So we always like to just open with the references and say, look, if you're familiar with these, uh, this is it. A few key things. It is a WASD game instead of click to move. So MOBAs are historically click to move. So we're a lot faster paced, a lot more Twitch-based action, skill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the best way that I can describe it is rather than having lanes and minions and towers like a traditional MOBA, there's actually a ball. And the ball is essentially the minion. So your goal is to ping this ball around, pass it around, work as a team, ultimately to score the ball into a tower, aka use minions to kill the tower, and then ultimately a goal. A goal being a nexus, but instead of destroying it, you're shooting the ball into it. Uh, we describe it as you balance what we call ballin' and brawlin', which just rolls off the tongue super nice. But I think what we've been able to do is build just like this really interesting balance. Combat in the game is insanely fun. For anybody who ever played Battle Right way back in the day, that game was the pinnacle of action combat. But it got boring really fast because... It was just a team deathmatch. And I think what we've been able to do is find this really interesting ball game mode and say, hey, here's this incredibly deep fighting. You're going to have a ton of fun fighting. But by the way, there's this wild card and you're going to have to start paying attention to this ball and you're going to pass it around and it's going to make fighting interesting every single time. And that's where the depth comes from. So it's the balance of those two things that I think makes Spark Ball so addicting, frankly. Yeah, I've watched uh, I've watched a few games and... It's a mix of sport and combat. That's quite a sort of Roman gladiatorial sort of thing going on. You've got to work out how to, how much the balance between fighting and killing the opposition and then working towards scoring the goal. So that's an interesting yep. balance. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot, of, a lot of people are like, okay, it sounds like Omega Strikers, for example. And I think the way that I always describe this is like Omega Strikers is a ball game that happens to have combat. And for what it is, it's very well made. I think it's like incredibly well designed. It's a great game. We are a combat game with a ball and completely different angle. And flipping that switch on the way that you think about the game makes an entire world of difference. And in our opinion, that has more depth potential. Digging in on that combat, you can go so much deeper into combat when the ball is just the second fiddle. Now, what are you? What's the team using to build the uh, game? Uh, we're in Unreal Five. You are okay, yeah. Uh, but it is not. It's not obviously. It's not first person, and uh, the view is further away, so you're not Correct. seeing the beautiful detail of those models most of the time. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's. Uh, we're a huge fan of the stylized 
feeling to it, especially given like our lighthearted feel. Like we're very bright and airy and optimistic type feeling. So yeah, a lot of people are like, why didn't you build in Unity for that? But I still think there's this huge advantage to Unreal. It's just whatever you want to do, you can generally do it. Also, if you have down the line, you have plans to build other things, other games within 100%. the same game world, UE5 would be a good idea, I think. Yeah. Now, so the blockchain integration, what is it? Yeah, be completely upfront. Uh, it's not a lot. We are firm believers that in order for mass adoption to take place in Web3, you can't put in Web3 right now. <laughs> I think long-term, the way that we look at it is, look, it's going to be your traditional free-to-play, League of Legends, Fortnite, whatever. And some of the cosmetics are going to be on-chain. Some of those are going to be NFTs to a certain degree. But I think the real key is getting people hooked and attached to the game before you ever introduce that element. What is speculation? If there's nothing behind this, if it's literally just speculation, if there's no demand other than speculation, it's not good. And so the way that I always describe this is I'm a hardcore Web2 gamer. I'm not a super huge fan of NFTs personally. I'm not a huge fan of earning or anything around that nature, just personally. The idea of me coming into a Web3 game and immediately saying, hey, by the way, some of our stuff is NFTs, I will turn that off immediately. It, it, regardless of onboarding and wallets and all this talk about infra, I don't really care. It's the idea behind it. It's the optics behind it. But if I log into a game and I play for three to four hours and I now have a main, if you're a League of Legends fan, you have your main, your favorite character. Three to four hours in, I get a prompt and it says, hey, by the way, you can buy skins for this character. And by the way, some of them are NFTs. I'm like, okay, I'm not really a huge NFT person, but let me go see what they look like. And then I can look at them and I can say, okay, this is really cool. Now I'm on board with this. I think that is how you successfully integrate sustainable Web3. You have yeah. to have that audience first. And our early access weekend last week, nobody even knew we were a Web3 game. And when they found out, they were like, wait, what, really? But I think that's what we're trying to accomplish, essentially. That's the most gentle on-ramp that I've ever had explained to me for a game that yeah. <laughs> purports to be Web3. And personally, that doesn't worry me at all because the whole distinction between Web2 and Web3 I don't particularly like in any case. Uh, but what is the advantage to you in, the, in, yeah. in that scenario? Given that you're saying basically this is a toxic concept to most of the people who might be interested in my game, why go there at all? It's a great question. Yeah, I mean, it's a super great question. I think inherently, like when we look at like historic examples of successful secondary marketplaces, CSGO obviously comes to mind. Um, and then there's a little known skin in League of Legends, if you're a hardcore fan, called Pax TF. Code given out in 2009, there's only X amount and it got discontinued and it went, I think it got up to like $1,000 or something like that. And our theory is essentially, look, there are going to be hardcore fans. And one of my favorite things that anybody's ever said to me about game design is it is a game design flaw if a player wants to spend a million dollars on your game and they actively cannot. And in League of Legends, the absolute most you can spend, and this game has been out for 15 years, is something like $13,000 or something like that. And if you ever meet anybody from like AFK Arena or Genshin Impact, they're laughing at $13,000. They're like, I sneezed and spent that yesterday in Kitchen Impact. Yeah. Uh, and so to us, it's this idea of, look, when you have this top 5 to 10% of a secondary market, that frankly helps subsidize the other 90%. I'm not going to sit here and claim that the revenue is going to be equal from both of those, like the amount of royalties and things we collect off those. But those people exist. And to not cater to those audiences, I think you're missing out on a huge kind of chunk. 
And I think ultimately, when we think about Web3, we are a competitive mobile game. Having Web3, a token, NFTs, whatever, is drastically limited in a completely skill-based game. You would ruin it. Like You cannot do that. It's sacrilegious to do that in a competitive PvP game. So when we think about Web3, we look at it more as a long-term play. And I think you alluded to this, so I think you've, you know us a little, but more than Sparkball, we're building what we call Sparkadia. And the entire goal of Sparkadia is to build an entire IP, not just a single game. And as soon as we get people attached via Sparkball, we have fans of Sparkadia. That to me is when Web3 becomes much more interesting. It's the second game that is pay to win. Let's not hide. Let's not beat around the bush. It's pay to win. Uh, and it's a gotcha style like Genshin Impact. People are already attached. That's when Web3 becomes super, super interesting. Mass adoption first, then roll it out. Yeah, there there is a inherent tension between uh, a lot of the uh, blockchain technology and a fair playing field. 100%. Yeah. So tell me about the spectator angle on the game. It's obviously highly paced, a lot of stuff happening on screen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's chaotic. Are you building it for spectators as well? A little bit, yeah. And like inherently, when I think about spectators, I also think about esports. So obviously, we've put a huge focus on esports. We had like Cloud9, Fnatic, G2, all those people come in and play the game. And the one thing that I'll say that I say all the time is never, ever build a game for esports and never, ever build a game for spectator. You want to build a game that happens to support those things. You don't want to build it for it. Tell me why, if you set out to build a game for spectators, why is that a bad idea? Yeah, I th it's when you build a game for that. If you're making game design decisions for those things, you're likely alienating a certain part of your audience. For example, like League Esports, one of the biggest esports in the world, Valorant Esports, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Those games are built for a widespread, massive audience. And yes, there are hundreds of thousands of us that love League of Legends Esports. But the moment that the game is balanced around Esports or is changed because of something for the spectator, you have made couple hundred thousand people happy and you've alienated the other 10 million that play your game. Um, you want to make sure that it supports esports, but not is balanced around it. And I think what's so great about Sparkball, and you hit the nail on the head because it is pure chaos. Don't get me wrong. If you're watching it for the first time, you're like, what the heck is going on? I think what's so beautiful about it in comparison to something like League of Legends, that I think even like CSGO has almost the same feeling. I don't play CSGO, I still watch it. There's one point of focus, and that's the only thing you need to worry about. In CSGO, it's the ball. And in Sparkball, it's the ball. And so I think what's so interesting, I always tell this story, is my wife is not a gamer in the slightest. She hates video games. She's, we made her do our tutorial, and it was absolutely hilarious watching her do the tutorial. So not a gamer. I've put League of Legends on the living room TV before, and she just says, what a bunch of nerds. This is ridiculous. Like, why do you guys watch this? This is nonsense. And then I've had her watch Sparkball, and she can actually follow it. It feels like a regular sport. It feels like you're just watching soccer, football, whatever on the TV. Follow the ball. It's that simple. I take your point around the single point of focus. It's very interesting. Uh, a game like uh, Dota 2, for example, yeah. you can have multiple action zones happening at a time mm -hmm. makes it more difficult to appreciate so you mentioned that yeah. a, a second game that will have a pay to win dynamic in it tell me about that game i'll start by saying this is a long-term plan uh something we learned uh about the middle of last year is trying to work on two games simultaneously is really dumb do it any indie studios out here listening right now there's my 
biggest advice to anyone starting out right now, focus. That said, uh, games also take a really long time. So this is a three, four year time horizon. But ultimately what we're trying to do is what we describe as an ecosystem of games or interoperability where it makes sense. And so the idea is that basically, look, the most fun thing about a gotcha RPG is characters. It's what makes all the money. That's what you buy. That's what you spend endless amounts of money to, to roll and try to draw. If people already love the characters, they're obviously going to love and want to get all of these things and grow attached to these things. So the way that we kind of look at it is, look, we have Sparkville. We have this large, mass appeal game that we think everybody from every genre wants to play. We're getting them attached to these characters. We have this absolutely incredible world. We have two books out already. We've got cinematic trailers out already. People getting attached to this world. And then we come in over the top with a gotcha RPG. Super pay to win. It's a single player. Everybody knows it. And it's something you can do while you're in queue for Sparkball, which I think is by far one of the most important pieces. You buy a skin for one of your characters in the gotcha RPG, that skin works in Sparkball and vice versa. And so it's this idea of starting to find these synergies of, look, we're having this ecosystem. We have this audience. How do we get this audience to dive even deeper into Sparkadia? So that's how we look at the long-term plan. Uh, and that's why we're so IP focused. Like why in the world is a game at alpha have two books published? That's a good question. I can see why people would want to challenge that, but it's because we want to, we really want to set the foundation for these long-term plans. And we're very serious uh, about developing the world beyond just a single game. We think that's long-term engagement. So you have two books out. I didn't realize that. Tell me about the books. Yeah, let's call it Glowcat in the Art of Timing is our first one. It is a hundred chapters, each with a hundred words a piece. It's awesome. It takes you like less than an hour to read, but it's really cool. It tells a story about one of our characters. And then the second one that just came out is called Welcome to Sparkadia. Um, and it is like an intro that is, uh, it's like a tour guide. So think like a, like those classic postcard style. And the tour guide is my dog, Max. So it is a golden retriever that takes you around the world and explains things to you and like all the oddities of the world. And he's basically giving you a tour of Sparkadia. So how important is your community to you? Tell me about how you think about that. We are literally still here because of five people who were so in love with what we were doing that they motivated me to not quit. Like I, I'm not exaggerating. That's how important these people and so I think for indie studios like us who don't have tens of millions of dollars to make a game, it's community stuff like that. And I think what's been so awesome, we are not marketing people. We are not like the big, oh, we have 100,000 people on our Discord and it's all this crazy stuff. We can sell NFTs super easily. We're not those people. Um, so when we launched Early Access Weekend, marketing was like our least favorite thing to do, obviously. And... I cannot tell you how much it means to an indie developer like us to come out of early access weekend and have like mega fans. Uh, like people are like posting gifs all over discord of please reopen the servers. I need more. They've got like the addict type gifs of us wanting to reopen it. And that's the type of community we want to build. Our goal is that you, whenever you finish playing Sparkball, you are happier than when you started playing Sparkball. So you mentioned, Chandler, that there was a period where uh, a handful of your community convinced you not to give up. It seems <laughs> to me that your project is uh, pretty much riding on your energy and drive, uh, and, and it's been doing that for seven years. Yeah. Ago, is that right? Yeah. Um, Tell me about that. For the record, I thought that I was going to get to Kickstarter or whatever from the prototype 
after spending about like thirty to forty thousand dollars, and I thought that it would take me about two years. And so obviously it took me six years and about two hundred something thousand dollars. And this was my own money. I used to have a lot of friends and family members and stuff ask me. They're like, Chandler, how's the game going? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. There's no path to success here. I don't even know why I'm still doing this. It's just a sunk cost at this point. I just I feel like I have to, and I'm contributing half my paycheck to this every month. I might as well. But then you have those glimmers of hope uh, of someone, you make a change and someone really loves it. And someone, you get one new user in who sees a video online and is like, hey, this looks really cool. You should keep going. I'm very interested in your passion for games. Uh, tell me, what was the first computer game you remember playing? Diablo 2, 100%. And I remember playing games. And first of all, I bought it like crazy in Diablo 2. I was like all about the trading and economics of it. But I've never been able to play a game and not think about what I would do differently. And I just knew from the moment I played Diablo 2, I said, I am 100% sure that I'm going to make video games at some point in my life. This is, has to be what I do. And Sparkball started because I was playing so much League of Legends at the time. And I said, there are so many things that I want to do differently here that I think would make a better game. And I think that's a huge difference. I would like anybody listening that wants to make games is be careful. Because making games is not playing games. And I know a lot of people that are super passionate about playing games. I know a lot of people that are really good at video games that would be absolutely terrible at making them. And I think I got really lucky that I think I'm pretty good at like understanding uh, the difference. And I would say probably the biggest key for this, if anybody's like, I don't know if I'm good at making games, I am the perfectly average player. And I think that's incredibly important. I understand games well enough, but I'm not super good at them. Meaning the audience that I design for is 90% of the audience. And the pro players are okay with the decisions I make. The noobs are okay with the decisions I make. And I'm really good at finding that happy medium. Tell me, what is the hardest thing you're dealing with right at the moment? <laughs> it's a simple answer, money. <laughs> uh, how much have you raised to date? We've raised about seven to date. But I am very open and transparent. So if any VCs are listening to this, I'm not like sharing secrets or anything here. We wasted about four million of that. Just mm. absolutely wasted. Working on the second game, building out the team too big. Our burn rate got way too high. Productivity did not match the burn rate. Blah, 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 blah. We wasted it. First time founder made a ton of mistakes. Ton of mistakes. So the game we have right now, we've done for about three million. And I think anybody in game development that plays this game and says, did this for three million, that's insane. So yeah, we just need some more money right now. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. In retrospect, is that it has the money been the hardest thing as well? 100%. Or? Yeah. 100%. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. were raising last year and we had this belief that, hey, look, we have 30 people from Riot on our team. Fundraising should be the easiest thing in the world, right? And it wasn't super hard, but what happened is we had this giant round queued up. We have eight or nine million lined up. Luna crash happened. Yeah. All of that money starts going away. All of it decommits. We did it again. We had another eight or nine million built up. We're about to close the round. Everything's looking good. FTX happens. <laughs> everybody loses their money and everybody decommits again. So it's just been this roller coaster. But at the same time, like I don't look back at any of that about regret because we made huge mistakes. Second game, building the team too big. We made so many mistakes. And I don't think we ever would have realized any of those mistakes had times not been as hard. Like, let, we let could have just coasted you. along and, and yeah. not, never known any better. 
So you had those two uh, raises set up and then they collapsed. Was that basically Web3 money? Was that crypto yes. money? Yeah, it was. Because yeah. that obviously at certain periods was pretty easy money to get. Yep. Uh, did you? Were you always going against the stream of your intuition on that one, emphasizing the Web3 possibilities in the game to, to get the money? Yes and no. So openly admit, like when we were originally raising, like the first 3 million that we raised, we pitched all the traditional Web2 VCs. Every single response was, hey, crazy cool prototype. This is insane, but you have no team. You're not investable. I'm not putting any money in you. We pitched Web3 and closed it. We were like, hey, by the way, we actually have a game, which nobody in Web3 had. We actually have a game, raised 3 million really quick. And we thought that kind of the that trend would continue. There's not a lot of teams with 30 people from Riot building a Web3 game. Clearly, we have this huge advantage. We were way more open to Web3 in that way. And also, Web3 was still doing really well. Like NFTs and games actually made a little more sense. Alluvium was out there raising like 80 million in land sales. Product wasn't even out yet. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. So we were kind of like, oh, okay, look, we can still be Web2 traditional gamer focused, but we can at least entertain this stuff. And I think ultimately, one of the big issues with crypto money is gaming investing is a very fickle beast, I guess is the way that I'd put it. And what I mean by that is it's a very long-term horizon. Good games take tens of millions of dollars to make, and they take four to five years. And we're already way ahead of that curve because we been working on this for so long. We probably have a solid two years of development is what I'd call it. But you go to a lot of these crypto investors and they're like, hey, when's when is the token out? When's the token investing? When am I going to make my money back? And you're like, the game has to launch first, which is another year and a half away. And then we have to make sure we have an audience. We have to make sure that everything's in place for the token and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, oh, I'm out of here then. Let me just go find one of these projects that have sold $10 million in NFTs and I know I can get my money back in six months. So I think a lot of crypto investors didn't realize what gaming investing actually was and the people that are left still doing gaming do and i think understand it but i think that was a big hump for us to get over that's a fascinating series of observations there and i think you're spot on the expectation of uh, quick returns on gaming is delusional i would say <laughs> it's interesting to hear you mention alluvium there because they're pretty much on your telling making every mistake that you've said don't do look uh, this is no shade at Alluvium at all. I don't know them at all. They clearly have a completely different approach than us. Here's what I would say. Let's say that Alluvium decides tomorrow, that, okay, we're going to exclusively focus on the game itself, the fun of the game, blah, blah, blah. They have $100 million in the bank that they can do that with. We don't. <laughs> so don't get me wrong. Like They technically made the right choice. No matter how you look at it, you cannot ignore the fact that they have that much money in the bank. I would say the same thing for stuff like Star Atlas and Aurori. These games did absolutely insane token races and NFT races, and they've got so much money in the bank that if they're listening to this podcast, they're probably like, Chandler, shut up. <laughs> You're so wrong. We're fine. And look, I, games getting made makes me happy. I don't care what angle we go for it. I think the only thing I don't like is games that got funded that clearly should not have. I was on a call the other day or a Twitter space the other day, and there were 12 games on it, and nine of them had block, crypto, bit, something in the title and i'm sure there are a couple of good games that have that in their title but i'm just being 100 percent honest with you your goal is not traditional gaming if that is in your title and that's fine don't get me wrong that is totally fine that is a totally viable strategy and you're probably going to raise more money than we do and 
congratulations. But it's just a completely different focus for us. But I think what it does is it, it gets rid of our legitimacy. It's this idea of every Web2 gamer, when they hear Web3 games, they think of those games. They don't think of us. Yeah, really interesting positioning. And it becomes a marketing issue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, your personal journey, Chandler, we've talked a bit about it. Uh, it's pr- sounds pretty intense, seven years of struggle. Where are you heading? Uh, so we just had early access about a week and a half ago now, and it went fantastic. Like literally moment of a lifetime. The feeling was indescribable. Like watching people play this game and seeing the numbers. Uh, our servers were open for 72 hours and our top 100 players averaged 24 and a half hours played. That is, people are so hopelessly addicted to Sparkball. Like that, that's an amazing feeling. So we finally had the metrics. So a lot of, I mentioned earlier about these kind of traditional Web2 gaming VCs. There's two ways to get money from a Web2 gaming investor. One is to be really famous, uh, be like a former executive at Riot or EA or Bungie or whatever, and just go say, hey, buddy, <laughs> I could use some money for my startup studio. That's way number one to get money. Second way is to have metrics. Prove that your game actually works. Prove that it has retention. Prove the stickiness. Yeah. Chandler, uh, best of luck with the game. It has been great speaking with you. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me, Hal. I enjoyed Chandler's openness and his willingness to share how tough game development can be. And you can be sure it's tough. After I spoke to Chandler, Sparkball's Discord server was hacked. The whole thing was taken over and several community members had their crypto wallets drained after being lured into scams. It was a bitter blow for Sparkball and saw a few thousand people leave their Twitter account. But just another step along the road. Sparkball and Chandler continue. My name is Hal Crawford. I'm the head of content at Polymos and you've been listening to Key Characters. See you next time.